are few things on earth that generate more conversation than wine. For many, the thirst for wine knowledge becomes an obsession. We all know people who are passionate about sharing that knowledge and their opinions about wine. We call some of those folks sommeliers, wine aficionados, wine experts, wine gurus, and the most commonly used title, boring. Welcome to Grape Encounters. We love wine just as much as anyone else, but while we crave those special wines that are silky smooth and go down so easy, we find an awful lot of the conversations about wine pretty hard to swallow. There is one overriding premise here at Grape Encounters. Wine pairs best with life. Accordingly, your host David Wilson, his guests, and the rest of us on the team are here to show you a great time, how to have more fun with your wine, where to enjoy wine the most, how to immerse yourself into a wine lifestyle that isn't simply about wine. So let's dive into this week's edition of Grape Encounters. Oh, you'll learn plenty, but hopefully it will be knowledge that you can really use. Not like that Latin class you took in high school. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. weekend I had the opportunity to cruise past one of my absolute favorite lakes on the entire planet. It's a place where I used to drag a boat up to when I had just gotten my driver's license and I would go there and fish all day, catch me some bass and some trout and have a really good time in Santa Barbara County, which is the county that is just south of where we are here up in Paso Robles. And we were talking last week about just how expansive the wine country in California is and the fact that you can literally drive hundreds of miles and be on vineyard land most of the way. Well, it's no different down near my very beloved Lake Kachuma, where there are just some amazing wineries and where the area has just exploded with grapes there. But life has not been very good to Lake Kachuma over the past, I don't know, uh, eight or ten years. In fact, a good portion of that period of time, the lake was completely dry or at least just barely a mud puddle. But this weekend, I had to head south and I decided to go up into the hill or maybe in some parts of the country you'd call them mountains. But I wanted to drive past Lake Kachuma because I hadn't seen it literally in a couple of years. And lo and behold, wow, the lake was almost entirely full. Now, that actually shouldn't have come as a surprise to me because for the past number of years, I've been monitoring the lake's level. And I don't know why I don't go there very often. I just love the lake. But that lake to me is very telling when it comes to trying to predict what's going to happen in our very big corner of the wine world here on the central coast of California. Now, just hold on to that thought for a second, because there was something else that really got my attention. And here's what it is. Unfortunately, the reason for my trip down south was because of a very serious illness in my immediate family and needed to to be there. So we spent several days together. And frankly, the outcome was much better than I would have expected. But one evening, we were going to put together a family meal and my father asked if we could stop at Trader Joe's. And so 
We did, but I noticed something interesting outside. It was an A-frame sign that said, Two Buck Chuck is now Two Buck Chuck again. Now, you have to actually be living under a rock if you don't know what Two Buck Chuck is, although I'll admit there are parts of the country where there isn't a Trader Joe's, but it's probably the best-selling wine brand of all time because it was selling at $1.99. But a few years back, something changed. They started selling the wine for as much as 3 to $4 per bottle. And people, I guess, were still pretty happy to pay the price, though it had actually doubled in, in some places. So the question is, why would the folks who make Two Buck Chuck for Trader Joe's drop the price so significantly? Now, I do want to start by saying, as far as I can see, the price change is only in the state of California. But it's very telling to me that this wine has dropped by a third to a half of its price recently. I mean, why exactly would they do that when they've already got people used to paying more for the wine? Good question, isn't it? And how does it relate to Lake Kachuma? Well, I think the answer might be seen in a third story that I came across over the weekend while scouring some of the trade publications that I routinely read. The story comes to us from Wine Business Daily News, and actually the story just came out today. And they're talking about a presentation that took place just recently at the Unified Wine and Grape Symposium, a really huge industry event. Well, anyway, the president of an organization called Allied Grape Growers said that California is oversupplied by at least 30,000 acres of wine grapes and the state's bearing acreage needs to be 560,000 acres or less to bring the market into balance. That's a direct quote from Wine Business Daily News. 30,000 acres is a heck of a lot of acres. So three stories there, okay? My just casual observations about my favorite lake, Lake Kachuma, and the fact that this drought-stricken lake is looking mighty fine, and we haven't even gotten to the wettest part of the season yet. So it seems like there's a good chance that for the first time in ages, and I mean ages, Kachuma will spill over its banks. Now, to put things into perspective, Kachuma sits up in the foothills and then below it, if we're looking north and I guess also west, you're going to find just an enormous amount of wine country. This was wine country, by the way, that was chronicled in the cult film classic Sideways. And uh, I've got an actually interesting story about that that I want to share with you in a little bit as well. But anyway, so we've got a full lake in an area where it had been nothing but drought for years. And to be fair, the lake did start to come back the last couple of years, but didn't have much of a fighting chance just because there was so much that had to be made up for that had taken place here. Thus, the horrible fires that we had as well. We had rains and we grew lots of brush and grass and, and Mother Nature really, really bared down on us for uh, quite a while. It was absolutely horrible. But in the end, the water table is quite a bit better than it's been in a, in a really long time. 
Then, of course, the second story, just two buck chuck and a company that would, you know, literally sacrifice what? 50%, 25% of their, their selling price of this iconic product. And, you know, by the way, no judgment as far as Two Buck Chuck is concerned. I don't drink it, but I got no objection to you drinking it if, if you like it. But it is an example of just how low prices can go and still produce a beloved product that's way cheaper than other stuff out there. And then, of course, my third story about industry professionals saying, hey, wait a second, we've got too many grapes. So what does this really mean for the year that we're in and maybe upcoming years? Well, I'm going to tell you something that I mentioned about eight or 10 months ago when I had our good friend of the show, Adam Lazar, in here, who's an iconic uh, winemaker who makes wines like Cycles Gladiator and Rex Goliath. He's been responsible for producing some very, very, very big brands. And something that he said to me back then was, we have a real glut when it comes to the juice that we make wine from. And he mentioned the fact that those who are producing large volumes of wine it's kind of a field day for them because, you know, they can actually go out and buy pretty high quality juice for way less than what they typically would spend for it. Now, this juice sits in all kinds of storage tanks. Some of them are just absolutely massive. And I'm going to talk about that as well on the show today. But it would seem that we have a pretty substantial backup supply of grape juice. And, uh, you know, realize that the juice can sit in tanks for a long time. It doesn't have to be finished off or, or blended or anything like that in a, a quick hurry. But what's going to happen if this year we have a wonderful year? It is a double-edged sword for sure. And I don't really know completely what to make of it. But the one thing that I know is that it's going to impact you in a way that I think you're going to love. And I'll go further and say, even though we're talking about what's going to be the 2020 vintage of wine, and we all know that you know, the red wines might not come out for a couple of years. So even though we're looking into the future, I believe the impact is going to be felt immediately if we're not already feeling it because folks that make wine, produce wine, are going to have to get this wine off the shelves, in my opinion. And so consumers, I would say, be on the lookout for bargains galore because you're going to see them out there. And, you know, in the end, I think it's all good. But let's talk in a second about a little more of the impact where you're concerned. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine and More, where they already have wines at just amazingly wonderful prices. You want to definitely check out the wines that come directly to Total Wine and more from the winemakers. For more information, go to TotalWine.com. We like to talk about wine. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio, broadcasting from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in idyllic Atascadero, California. Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More, America's largest independent retailer of fine wine. 
They carry more than 8,000 different wines from every wine-producing region in the world and offer an equally monumental selection of beer and spirits. Here's David. On our last edition of Grape Encounters Radio, we had a really interesting conversation with Jenny Heinzen, and she is the owner of Jenny Heinzen Real Estate, which specializes in selling vineyards and wineries and other similar kinds of properties. Well, anyway, we were talking about the various roles that different businesses play in the wine industry. More specifically, uh, the notion that we have people who both grow grapes and make their own wines, which is how it mostly used to be. We have people who just grow grapes and they sell the grape juice or the grapes to buyers. uh, And those buyers could be making really, really out-of-the-park wines or just everyday drinking wines. We also have people who grow grapes, make their own wines, but also sell off a portion of their inventory to other folks who are making wine. And then finally, we just have the people who are buying the juice and making the wine. And they could be buying the grape juice from a lot of different sources, and it's going to depend a lot on just how big these operations are. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is because the whole matter of grape juice can be very complicated. And I, I wanted to try to drill down just a little bit so you can understand you know, how it works, but also how it might impact things this year in 2020 and maybe going forward as well. First of all, I know that a lot of you already know what I'm going to tell you. If you're deeply into wine, none of this is necessarily new news for you, but you know, stay with me anyway. We're just going to go through this really super quickly. But I want to really make it very clear that the spectrum of types of uh, organizations, businesses that make wine is very, very broad. What that means is that there are family operations that are maybe only making a couple of thousand cases of wine, which, you know, that may seem like a lot to you, but it really isn't in the grand scheme of things. Even a winery that makes 30 or 40,000 cases of wine, and imagine trying to stack that in your house. You, You couldn't do it. But an operation that's making that much wine is still considered to be just a mid-sized winery because there are behemoth wineries out there that are making literally millions of bottles of wine. It's astonishing how they do it. And I am not one to be critical of those companies just because they're mass producing wine. And the reason that I am supportive of them is number one, they bring a lot of people into the fold who might not otherwise get excited about wine, except for the fact that these bulk wines can be purchased at a much lower price. So it makes wine very accessible for the newbies and for people, frankly, who aren't as fussy as you and I might be. So anyway, you you do have these big, big brands. Uh, Sometimes it's probably not fair. I'll call them tanker truck wines because literally the juice is moved around in in tanker trucks. So you can see the, the, the broad range out there. Just because you buy your grapes from somebody else, 
counts doesn't mean that you're making a lesser wine and that you're actually buying grapes that somebody else didn't want. There are some vineyards, uh, well, they're all across the world, really, that people would die to be able to purchase the grapes there. Okay, they wouldn't die, but they'd come close to it. The Tokolon Vineyard in Napa is a really great example where you could probably never get in on that action over there. There are several different people who make wines from grapes that are grown in this iconic vineyard, and the grapes are absolutely wonderful. One of those people is uh, our friend Mark Carter of Carter Cellars, who's won several hundred-point scores from Robert Parker, which is just almost impossible to do. Anyway, so, so going back to the juice, no matter what the situation is, there is a great amount of juice every year, even in a slow production year, that is going to be stored in ginormous tanks. And to just give you an idea of how big these storage tanks are, I was looking up uh, online to see how much water a typical swimming pool holds. And um, a swimming pool that would be 18 feet wide by 30 feet long would hold about 25,000 gallons of water. And there are tanks out there, as I understand it, I've not seen any this big that hold 400,000 gallons. So what does that work out to? About 10 swimming pools full of wine in a single tank, if you can believe that. Now, a lot of folks are under the impression that when you are going to be making wine, you, you go out, you harvest the grapes, and you've got to make the wine immediately, and that all wines are generally made made from, you know, grapes that are still in their stems and that will be de-stemmed and they will be crushed by the person that's going to make the wine. Well, that's not true. It is true in a lot of instances, but in other instances, what happens is there are places that will crush the grapes in very, very large volumes and then the grapes will literally be fermented and then they'll be put into giant holding tanks and then distributed. But as I was saying uh, a little bit earlier, you know, in talking to people in the industry like our friend Adam Lazar, who do rely on purchased grapes to make some of their wines, there's just an enormous amount of juice out there right now. And as I understand it, we're still hanging on to juice from the prior year, which means if we have a great big year this year, you know, where is all the juice going to go? To me, it seems that there is only one really plausible answer. And that is the wine industry is really going to have to get a move on and, and really move a lot of wine. And as I said, it's great news for the consumer. Now, not necessarily great news for the winemakers because obviously they're, they're going to take a, a hit on these wines. And, you know, even though you might not really be aware of just how much the price of certain wines have fallen because every year there's just, you know, more and more new entries that come into the fold, you'll know by the quality of wine that you can purchase versus the price that you pay for it. And what I also think is that it means that even the folks who are making more commercial wines, you know, for, you know, everyday drinking, tailgate parties, whatever, even the quality of those juices is going to be higher than normal because a lot of the folks that would typically be buying the highest quality juice may not have the capacity to make the amount of wine that would be necessary, you know, given just the limitations of their own facility. 
facilities. So it's going to be way super interesting to say the least. And before I finish this thought, I just want to say this again. There are, I think, some very acceptable, wonderful, larger production wines out there. I drink them myself. I am not a wine snob who only wants to drink boutique wines, but just watch. Watch the quality trickle up. Watch the price trickle down and watch how stellar a year it becomes in 2020 for those of us who love wine. I think there's a lot of surprises around the corner. Now, of course, the weather's got to hold up. We're a long ways off. Uh, Harvest is like an eternity away. But the way things are shaping up and based on the patterns of the past couple of years, hot dog, this is going to be the golden age of wine for you and I. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where we believe there's no way to fake a great wine, and where we never fake our disdain for the really bad ones. When I first became aware of the Paso Robles wine region, well, the Central Coast in general, I would say there was probably not more than about eight or ten, let's just call them substantial serious players in the market. We're going back quite a long ways and I'm dating myself. But today, there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people that are making wine here. And, you know, if you could pop back here to the, let's say, early 70s and drive around, you'd see a lot of sheep and cows grazing, but you wouldn't see a lot of vineyards. You'd see very few, and the ones that do or did exist at that time were kind of off the beaten path. So the amount of grapes that were growing in California alone, and yes, I talk about California more than anything else because we produce 90 plus percent of the domestically produced wine that's consumed here in the U.S. So it's a very big deal. But anyway, if you could go back to, let's say, the early 70s and you could take with you some various bottles of finished wines and get Give them to the top winemakers to try. I think their eyes would absolutely light up. But what I think is even more interesting is that some of the mass-produced wines, or let's just say grapes that are grown on massive properties in huge volume, those grapes compared to some of the best grapes from way back when compare very favorably because the technology that now is involved in the winemaking process, the way that we control pests without harmful pesticides, the the way that we make sure that we make the cleanest, purest, most delicious, and yes, in a lot of cases, organic wines, the way that we go about that is just so different than the circumstances that existed back then. So that's why I think 
it's really easy for me to say, yeah, you know what? You, you want to drink wines that are produced by the millions of bottles? Those organizations are really, really equipped to do a great job. Now, the aficionados out there are going to say, David, shut up. And yeah, you know what? It, it's not for everybody, and it's certainly not for every circumstance, but I will gladly drink an inexpensive, you know, mass-produced wine at a barbecue, and I won't fuck over it it'll you know it's a lot about the situation and the company you know the funny thing uh, about the wine business is that sometimes what we call high tech is really really very low tech and since i was talking about these you know huge storage and fermentation tanks that are used in the industry today i wanted to touch a bit on a major change that is taking place not just in wine making here in the U.S., but also throughout the world. And we're kind of turning back to some ways of fermenting grapes and aging grapes that existed in some cases thousands of years ago. And we replaced the techniques that were used then with the ever-popular barrel and the ever-popular steel tank. But now we're starting to realize that some of the vessels that were used to age wine in and store wine in were really, really the bomb. They, they were so perfect and we may have tried to upgrade from something that was really the coup de grace in terms of winemaking. Most specifically, I want to talk about eggs and amphoras, okay? Eggs and amphoras. If you go into a lot of modern wine making facilities, you will see something in the room where all the tanks are that looks like a giant egg. It's way bigger than a dinosaur egg. It holds a whole lot of wine and it is actually made out of concrete. And these eggs are very, 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 very expensive. And the materials that go into making them have been very, very carefully thought through. And the results that they're delivering to winemakers is really simply off the charts. There's something about this shape, and I won't get into it now, that makes it the perfect configuration for wine aging in a lot of cases, not every case. So some some tremendous wines are being made by using the, these concrete eggs. But the vessels that are similar to that, that really date back in history, are the amphoras. And, you know, you can just picture this as a giant vase that could be 10 feet, 12 feet tall. I'm not sure what the average height is, but I've seen a lot of them. Now, they're made out of a lot of different materials, but the amphoras, what they do is, uh, in a lot of places, they'll take the vessel and they will bury it in the dirt where only the top is exposed, and then they can tend to the wine from, you know, basically ground level, and the dirt that surrounds the amphora will keep it perfectly insulated and create just the ideal conditions for aging wine perfectly. 
But the, the last thing I want to talk about are what are called concrete tanks. And this gets super interesting because they're making these gigantic tanks. They hold a lot, a lot of wine and they're made entirely out of concrete. And that sounds kind of weird because I think most people would imagine that the concrete would impart some kind of flavor, you know, into the wine. But there's been a lot of science applied to it. And there have been formulations made of concrete that create absolutely the perfect interaction between the concrete itself and the wine. Now, in a lot of cases, those concrete tanks are actually lined and the concrete isn't directly exposed to the wine. But in other cases, some flavor that comes from the concrete will leach into the wine just ever so little and give the wine some very unique acidity and things like that. And the way, by the way, that they make these tanks is in most cases, I think they pour them in place, meaning they have to set up the molds to create these tanks and they, they pour the concrete in place. But here's where it gets, I think, ultimately interesting is that there are winemakers now, uh, vineyard owners, winery owners that are actually having the stone that is found on their property ground up and it becomes the main ingredient for the construction of these concrete tanks. And so if any characteristic of that concrete is imparted into the wine, it is a reflection of that particular place and it is I think just an amazing idea that the earth would somehow be able to interact in yet another way uh, with the grape juice and ultimately the wines that are being made. So it's pretty interesting stuff. There are a lot of people who poo-poo the idea that anything leaches into the wine. So there are two schools of thought there, and uh, I think there's a, a lot of disagreement about that. But in the end, everybody seems pretty thrilled with the concrete tanks and they're going to be here I think from from now on and it's so interesting to walk into a room at a winery where there's a whole wall of these, you know, square tanks. Sometimes they're, they, they look like they're connected and they're really, really cool to look at. But between the tanks, the eggs, the barrels, you have so many different things that are now affecting the kinds of wines that we can create. And ultimately, that means more diversity, more choices, more interesting things to taste when you go out and you buy some wines and you just want to have a, a weekend of sampling at home. And by the way, if you're going to do that, please, by all means, go see our friends at Total Wine and More because they will have wines that are aged in a multitude of different ways. They should be very familiar with and be able to explain to you wines that are aged in amphoras, that are aged in, uh, you know, these giant eggs and some other very unconventional methods 
methods of making wine that are making big news in the wine industry and making wine consumers very, very happy. All right, we're going to return in just a second. I want to revisit the movie Sideways when I return because I came across an interesting story about a revival of Sideways, but also about another production that's being made in the San Ynez Valley for something that's very hot on your home screen. So we'll get into that in just a second when we return with Grape Encounters. Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. Still other things I've got on my mind and wanted to share some light stories with you before we call it quits for the day. But I was talking a little while ago about the San Ynez Valley, which is the lower part of the Central Coast region that I'm in. But it's an easy hour and three quarter down there. They grow a lot of similar grapes down there, and they're both just really super good. Well, that area got a ginormous kick in the pants some years ago, I think about a decade and a half ago, from the movie Sideways, which to this day is probably the biggest cult film in terms of its impact on our consuming habits. In fact, if if you check in at various universities, you'll find that marketing classes teach something called the sideways effect because the fact that Miles, the lead character, loathed Merlot and loved Pinot changed the way a huge portion of the wine enjoying population consumed wine. They migrated away from Merlot and toward Pinot. And a lot of people say, wow, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to Pinot. And I say it, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to Merlot because the folks who continue to make Merlot really upped their game. And the problem with Pinot is a lot of those mass-produced Pinots weren't as delightful as uh, they probably could have been. Anyway, I digress. The, the movie was written, well, actually, the book was written by a fellow named Rex Pickett. He's been on the show. And he has since written multiple books that continue the Sideways adventure, but none of them thus far have been picked up for a movie. So Rex decided to take matters in his own hands and instead of worrying about getting on the big screen, get on Broadway instead. And actually, by the way, he has done previously a Sideways play. I know that it was performed in Santa Monica, California for a short while, but this is a a much bigger to-do that they're having here. It is Sideways the Experience, and they're calling it a full immersion experience that has just great food there and great wines there. But here's where I have a little problem with this production. And Rex, I hope you're listening because I don't understand for the life of me why it is that instead of pouring wines from the San Ynez Valley, which are beautiful, that they've chosen to pour wines from out of the region, including the the Russian River Valley, Napa and Sonoma counties. And mind you, great wines, right? I love them. But for the sake of 
accuracy and having the same experience that Miles and Jack had in the movie Sideways, I would think you'd want to pour from the San Ynez Valley. It just doesn't make any sense not to do that. Anyway, all of the food and wine is being handled by a New York caterer named Mary Giuliani. I don't think there's any relationship to Rudy, but I can't say that for sure. She comes from a long bloodline of hospitality folks, and the menu sounds great. Prosciutto and Brie s'mores with rosemary honey drizzle, tuna tartare, black tacos, avocado and chipotle creme, squid ink pasta donuts, whatever the heck that is, with rock shrimp and pancetta, vegetable pot pies with rosemary aioli, fontina and black truffle honey grilled cheese, and then duck confit pot pie with fig sauce. So anyway, that is what uh, you'll be eating if you decide to go to the play. I know Rex is a first class guy, so I would expect nothing less than a terrific experience there. It's going to be at the Piccadillo Theater Company's Theater at St. Clement. Uh, It starts on Sunday, February 23rd and then runs through April 12th. So you can just Google it uh, and you'll find it there. But it seems like it might be a world of fun. Uh, Now, as long as we're on the topic of movies and the Santa Ynez Valley, I learned something kind of interesting the other day that I didn't know. I have talked a bit uh, on this show about something that should be of great interest to you Trekkies out there, and I'm sure you all know about it by now, but there's more to the story. CBS is producing something called Picard, and Picard takes place several years after Captain Picard retires from Starfleet and he goes to his home in Bordeaux, the family home in Bordeaux, and goes back to making wine. <laughs> Can you believe it? I had no idea that Captain Picard was a, was a winemaker. But anyway, one of the super interesting things about the show is there actually is a Chateau Picard in Bordeaux. It's the strangest of coincidences. So imagine the the look on the faces of the folks over at CBS when they discovered that they had written a story about the beloved captain going back to Bordeaux to work on the family vineyard, only to find out there actually is a Chateau Picard there, which is why you can actually buy wines that are um, Picard wines. And it's pretty cool. Uh, you can go back and look for uh, my episode about that because it's a much longer story than what I'm telling you. But anyway, check it out. But here's uh, where it also gets interesting, and it's that apparently, um, at least the first installment of Picard, I don't know how many more, was filmed in the Santa Ynez Valley. You got it. The Santa Ynez Valley. And word just broke that it is at the wonderful Sunstone Winery. So, uh, yeah, why not do it in the Santa Ynez Valley? I mean, after all, uh, doesn't California wine country look exactly like Bordeaux? Uh, Well, it it looks the same other than the fact that there are are no uh, centuries old chateaus there to look at and that the streets and everything else look nothing like Bordeaux. But, you know, you've seen one grapevine, you've seen them all, right? So Sunstone is undoubtedly going to get a major boost from this, just like the San Ynez Valley did and has for several years now gotten, you know, great, great publicity that just continues from 
from the movie Sideways. Well, I hopefully have given them some additional publicity today. That is going to do it for Grape Encounters today. Grape Encounters has been brought to you by Total Wine and More. You're just going to find so many wines that have great backstories, like some of the wines that I've been talking about today and that I I talk about regularly on the show. The nice thing about the the great folks at Total Wine & More is they know the backstories on so many of these wines, and you can really, really get a better understanding about how these wines came to be. And I'll conclude simply by saying that Monday, I went and visited the Total Wine & More store in Thousand Oaks, California. Never been in that store. And all I can conclude with is the wow just gets bigger every single time I stop in a total wine. We'll see you here next week and uh, listen to other episodes of Grape Encounters at grapeencounters.com. Really appreciate you being a listener. Let's just keep fighting the good fight for the best possible unpretentious wine experiences. (laughs) 